0: Hello, Symposiast. I'm Dr. Angela Puka, Religious Studies PhD with horns. <laughs> and uh, this is your live stream, live uh, resource for the academic study of magic, esotericism, um, paganism, shamanism, and all things occult. Today it's going to be more chatty and it's going to be a way to celebrate the imminent <laughs> solstice or midwinter or uh, however you celebrate this time of the year. And um, first of all thank you everybody who is here in the in the chat and is watching i look forward to to reading the chat and this is a very special event because i have here my inner symposium my patron community uh, that i'm really um, excited to introduce to you guys Um, so uh, i as you know we can uh, the only way that this project supports itself is by everybody who uh decides that this project is worth supporting and i'm particularly proud of my patron community that i call my inner symposium because um not only it is a way to support my channel but we also have um a discord server we have monthly lectures for the magos and higher tier patrons uh, there are one-to-one conversations with me so i have um interactions like strong interactions and we form bond with each other with uh, my patron community and so i would love for you to to meet them and um you know to to have a glimpse of what it means you know what it is and what it feels like to be in the inner symposium and hi (laughs) Joao, another patron who unfortunately wasn't able to make it but uh here are my lovely patrons (laughs) welcome everybody uh so uh, would you like to introduce yourself for our audience uh we can start with uh karen and then move uh, Hopefully you see yourself in the same order that I see you.
1: Okay, so I get to unmute myself now, right? That's yes. How it okay. okay. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Karen, and uh, I'm an American woman living in Tokyo, Japan. And I tuned in from Tokyo a couple of years ago. Really excited, happy about all the topics. I've been here in Japan for a long, long time. and. Uh, the topics about the winter solstice versus the Japanese counting of the timing of the seasons and those things have been interested interesting to me for a long time. But I love learning about this topic, so I'm really looking forward to today.
0: Mm. Thank you, Karen. And uh, Karen is also helping me a lot with my uh preparations for my trip to japan (laughs) because in late january for a couple of weeks uh, i will go to japan with um, a group of old long-time friends of mine uh, one of whom has a big birthday and so we decided to go all together on this uh, trip uh, that to fulfill our childhood dream because i realized that it's not common here in the uk and i don't know how it is in other countries but in italy um basically my generation especially and younger we, we kind of grew up with a japanese anime so there is a, a strong attachment especially to certain anime like sailor moon in my case oh, so totally. since my uh, since my birthday will also be part of the of the trip because it's on the 28th of january i'm still trying to find a way to finally Transform into Sailor Moon <laughs> on my <laughs> birthday. <So laughs> I'm
1: kind of helping with that,
0: and Karen is helping me to fulfill this very adult uh, task <laughs> of becoming Sailor Moon on my
1: over here, too. In yeah. Tokyo, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, so. Now, Andrew, your turn. And for all of you guys, Andrew is the one that you have to thank for the subtitles that you see on all my videos. And he does a lot of work in the in the background without being seen. Well, I see him, but you don't know that he's the one doing all these things. So he really helps this channel a lot. So thank you, Andrew, publicly. I always tell you privately, but uh, I think that, um, you know, uh, it's time to also acknowledge it publicly so everybody knows
2: <laughs> yeah um well i'm uh angela's oldest um pat- uh, patron
0: oh, and, oldest or you know what well, do you mean you could
2: say oldest i'm the longest there yeah the uh, that was
0: longest January, standing yeah uh,
2: three four years ago but i think i might be the oldest but not so sure now because we've got a, quite a few we've got a good range of. Um, ages in the uh, symposium now from young to to people like me who retired and Mm -hmm. um yeah um i I, one day I, i just sort of looked at the youtube um automatic um uh captions and you know they just got all wrong and all sort of really bad so i just um decided i would um clean one of them up and i sent it to angela and angela said, oh, I'm going to upload that. I said, no, 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 you can't do that because I haven't got any timestamps or anything like that. But it worked. So
0: yeah since I then, i
2: made sure that every um, every <clears throat> video has a decent uh, uh, captions to go with it.
0: Mm. Thank you, Andrew. That's very appreciated. And as you know, uh, we often get uh, comments from people saying that it really helps, especially non-native speakers or people that have uh, ear impairments. So, it's really helpful. (laughs) Dave, it's your turn.
3: Hi, everybody. I'm Dave and I'm also in the UK and I've been uh, involved in this channel supporting, I have no idea, it's a couple of years, is it more? A couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, Um, a couple of years. Yeah. So um, I came here because I was interested in Um, some reconstructive uh, ancient religions, and I also have always been interested in folklore. So the confluence of those things. And then I think for me, the fact that made me stay was the fact that the the way Angela treats the academic treatment and presentation of materials. um, I I like that it appeals to the way I think. So um, I've enjoyed the conversations inside. The inner symposium as well as the the externally public uh, uh published stuff so yeah um and my, my i'm, I'm, I'm kind of, of my, my background is you know it so i'm kind of interested in some of the conversations about techno paganism and uh and ai and uh some of the humorous conversations about uh uh ai and esotericism that uh, seem to be emerging everywhere so yeah that's kind of what I get involved with
0: mm. and you've also seen some of my talks live so
3: I have I have and I have helped reb- with reb- uh, of, um,
0: so if you um, uh, and look held the, microphones and things yes, held my, yes. <laughs> so he's also been a camera assistant on occasion <laughs> thank you for that He's also an expert on uh, technology and AI, so uh, we will talk about that uh, during this conversation. Marcus, tell us about yourself.
4: Thank you, Angela. My name is Marcus Mattern. I teach ceremonial magic. I live in Boulder, Colorado. I have a Facebook group with 10,000 magicians, and you can go to marcusmattern.com to learn more about me. And I've been part of the symposium for years. I have the best discussions with Angela, and I'm always trying to learn more about magic. And I know a lot about a little. I know my tradition of modern Golden Dawn magic, uh, but there's so much I don't know. There's so much out there. And it's wonderful to talk to Angela, who studied these things in an academic setting uh, and can just give me really rigorously researched information about all these other traditions of magic and all these other different religions, and just really enriches my understanding of magic as a whole.
0: Hmm. Thank you, Marcus. And I'm also part of your Facebook group. It's really interesting. <laughs> Hank, it's your turn now. Spotlight.
5: Uh, welcome everybody. And, uh, hello. I'm, uh, Hank. I'm from the land of two seasons, uh, summer solstice and winter solstice up here in Alaska, because in between is just a, uh, you know, quick tailspin. So we're in the middle of our wonderful winter. Uh, I'm a solitary practitioner of basically uh, mysticism and service, I guess would be what I do. Uh, I found Angela two years ago um, on a quest to greater knowledge, and I have found it and I'm very appreciative to it. And so part of my being here is to support not only her, but in how she Supports the broader community and gets good knowledge out there, and um, and I'm very thankful that I have this opportunity. And welcome.
0: Thank you, Hank. You're always so sweet, <laughs> Edward. Your turn.
6: Oh, hello, I'm Edward. Uh, I'm a librarian at uh, is an academic librarian at a university, and uh, I got really interested in uh, Angela's uh, channel because I at the, when I first started studying occultism, academic occultism didn't really exist. Um, and it, it it's really good to be able to get a little bit of certainty about what, at least what the people were doing and the stuff that you can know, to actually know. So it's a, it's a unique take because so, so many, you know, magical type programs just, give you what they think and this is this is a better way it's like oh yeah it's peer reviewed yeah there's there's some truth behind it so that's always great thank you
0: thank you edward so i guess that we can start by talking a bit about the the solstice and um is there what do you think about the the history of the solstice and um well obviously you know that i have made a few videos on that i have a video on yule and the history of yule and another one. On whether Christmas comes from uh, pagan midwinter celebrations, which is the, the latest one that I have published, and in both videos, what you can find, and this is this tends to be uh, what happens with most uh, with most celebrations, really, uh, that the celebrations that pagans and historic practitioners celebrate, and often uh, claim that the, the Christian ones or other uh, Abrahamic religions have taken from. Uh, pagan or aesthetic practitioners uh, to develop in in their own way is, you know, what you can find by watching my my videos and also reading the sources that uh, my episodes are based on, is that it's not that clear cut. It's like we tend to think sometimes about the development of religious traditions and even religious festivities as a straight line you know this comes first and then this comes after and so this must have absorbed everything and then reshaped it but it's not the, that that clear-cut uh, as we can find with many Uh, Pagan uh, celebrations. Of course, I'm a pagan studies scholar, so I have paganism in mind uh, here. But uh, as you can see, they have influenced each other. Yes, sure, there were pagan celebrations before Christmas, and they have influenced the formation of Christmas. But it's also true that Christmas has influenced paganism and pagan traditions. So it tends to be both ways because that one thing that we always need to remember is that religion is not different from any other cultural uh, product every cultural product we see in history is always influenced by not just one thing but multiple factors um elements that come from the past from different cultures different traditions and they all form the thing that you that you find in that specific moment in time but um i'm always very skeptical of reductionist any kind of reductionist. I know that there are others like Justin who likes reductionism, but I'm very skeptical of any form of reductionism, uh, whether it be um, reducing an explanation. Yeah, I guess that the thing that I personally really dislike is um, when you try to find one answer or one lens that is meant to explain everything that that's the core of what I dislike, <laughs> and then we can apply it to, to more specifically two things because by reductionism we often mean when um to explain something you only rely on the um, the material aspects of that. Uh, so, the, um, for instance, the, in the historical materialism, they tend to explain everything by what happened in history, and that is the thing that only exists. Um, and I, that is a form of reductionism, but there are many forms of reductionism, I would argue, and for me, as I said, I think that every time that you try to explain something complex with one key, one lens, to me, it's always unsatisfactory. I was um, watching something from uh, another YouTuber uh, the um, the other day, which was very well made and very interesting, Um, and it had a very strong uh, Marxist lens to understand um, witchcraft and certain elements of witchcraft, and I also recently contributed to a publication that is going to come out next year with um, a political scholar, with a scholar in political studies uh, from the University of Barcelona, and um, it was interesting to work on that because it was about how a political party in Barcelona is using witch as a way to demonize uh, women specifically that don't behave properly and one of the theoretical lenses that was used was um, uh, Silvia Federici with her uh, famous book um, I think it's called Caliban and the Witch if I'm recalling the, the title right and um i i find her very interesting uh but she's the example of to me <laughs> for more reductionism because it's just a way of explaining the use and the understanding of a witch with one lens only and um personally i i prefer to not only <laughs> have one lens to understand things that are complex uh, so that is what i tend to have uh, a problem with personally but i don't have anything against people that uh, prefer to to use that kind of lens of course everybody can understand the word the way they they prefer but yeah what do you guys think about well (laughs) sorry, I went on a monologue. Um, what do you guys think about the, the solstice celebrations for the solstice? For, I think a lot of us see the winter solstice. For Andrew, is summer solstice, <laughs> so let's just say solstice. <laughs> At least we can agree on that.
3: So there's one yeah. thing that occurs to me is that uh, if you think about the, you know, in, a, in, a, in an effort to try and uh, simplify rather than reduce, um one of the things that i've always found interesting is the process of contextualization so where stories would be handed down from generation to generation there is an assumption that in the past there is a um although there would be embellishment over time there would be a core of the lineage the provenance of that story would remain somewhat true So in order for that to happen, you know, that you're getting some sort of like link back to the past. And I think before I read Ronald Hutton, you know, for as an example, I had no idea of the level of complexity that contributes to the potential for certain celebrations to occur at this particular point in time in the UK, for example. Um, It was always my assumption incorrectly that it was a rebranded uh, christmas it was a rebranded pagan event and and i think that's one of the things that you have to realize that uh, uh it, it's just far from simple and i think there's a lot of people that have that assumption and um and believe that um there is a much more simple overlay of celebrations that uh you could argue it might be in terms of the way uh, Christianity has has occupied the space, but it's also like a cultural overlay. It's what became more common and, and more practiced got the narrative. So, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in it from a sociological point of view as much as anything.
4: Mm. Cool. Um, I will. <laughs> I uh, give a very simple explanation, the kind that uh, Angela hates, but it's uh, <laughs> I'm also open to other interpretations. This is just mine. I think it's useful to have multiple lenses on something. I think that we can have one explanation that you can have one explanation that you like and there can be others that are valid for other people and that's totally fine. Um, I see the winter solstice and all the solstices and equinoxes as part of a religious connection with the sun. Um, and the physical sun in many instances being a physical manifestation of and symbol of the eternal light of awareness. And so our own awareness is always shining. uh, And the sun is going and going through transformations. And the sun is always shining, but it's also going through transformations. And it has its peak of power in the summer solstice, which uh, Australia is celebrating right now. And it's got its trough, its uh, nadir of power uh, during the winter solstice. But that also makes it the time for reformulation, rebirth. Uh, It's when the sun becomes anew. And so it's a very powerful time for magic because the sun is uh, dimmest, darkest. Uh, this is the time of darkness. This is the time of greatest potential. Uh, and so if you want to do magic, it's a great time of year for putting your attentions out into the universe, starting to manifest them and then using the movement of the sun as an aid to that process. So as the sun becomes brighter and brighter, your manifestation becomes more and more part of the world, more and more part of the public sphere. Uh, and that can be a way to use the movements of nature Uh, to enhance uh, your magic and your connection to the world uh, and use the the sun and the movements of the sun as uh, not just a symbol, but a living entity that you can connect with for uh, spiritual transformation. And I feel like we've been doing that for a long time. Uh, You can look back to the Western tropical zodiac and how it's all key to the uh, solstices and equinoxes and movements of the sun. And we've just been looking to the sun forever for spiritual guidance. And so I find that this time of year, as much as uh, um, and, and often cases more than any other time of year, is the time that we look to uh, the sun for spiritual guidance.
0: Mm. And uh, what do you guys think when there is a discrepancy between when you realize, for instance, that something that is part of your, because I know that um, there are some of you that are practitioners, those who feel. Uh, like they want to share, but uh, even from on a theoretical level, uh, when there is a discrepancy between what you have believed and the, the history, how do you react to that and how does that affect your practice? Would you amend your practice in relation to the newfound knowledge or do you see the academic scholarship uh, disentangled from your spiritual practice?
6: Well, I have uh, an actual real life uh, example of that, uh, especially specifically with solstice. Uh, When I was a kid, my favorite Christmas carol was always Deck the Halls, mostly because it had absolutely nothing to do with Christianity or Christmas. It was all about boughs of holly and uh, stuff like that. And later on, I, I, I thought, oh, wow, this is like some kind of hidden language that's trying to bring these symbols forth well the song was written in the 1800s and uh if they if if the person was trying to uh bring ring about you know say this was some pagan leftover that that they were secretly trying to sneak into the song well the very sources that they were using you know have since been uh not entirely discredited but questioned quite Thoroughly academically, so maybe the druids didn't cut, you know, uh, mistletoe with bows uh, with you know brass boughs or whatever, brass sickles. Uh, so you know, you start pulling on on one of these threads, and there's a lot you can you can find out. Uh, the only thing is, it leaves you with more questions than answers.
0: Hmm. Yeah, but do you think that it changes the the practice of practitioners? How do you think that uh, knowledge affects, like for instance, in your case, um, has that knowledge changed the way that you felt about about it?
6: I I think that uh, for for me at least, uh, I feel. I don't know about anybody else we all get into esoteric studies or occultism or whatever for different reasons but one of the big draws for me was the uh, trying to find out the truth with a big T you know uh and uh find it, it, finding the things that i thought were were true and then there's more study for or there there are different ways of interpreting i find that comforting in a way uh and it may or may not affect what I do as far as ritual practice, but as far as my approach to it, um, yeah, it will change it because uh, all of a sudden these symbols uh, that I took for granted may not mean what I thought they meant, uh, and that's something that academic uh, study gives you. So you have to be willing to change your attitudes towards practice if you're going to take you. You can you can do anything you want, but if you're going to take uh, the academic stuff seriously then you have to be willing to uh you know uh at least look at your own beliefs and 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 how you approach things so um you know margaret murray is probably the best example you know it's like no it's not an unbroken lineage of uh, whatever whatever uh that affected a lot of people in, in the 90s and the 80s when uh, when when all of a sudden uh murray got debunked for good um and
0: how did the community uh, react to that knowledge did they change their beliefs or
6: yeah well some left entirely um, hank probably knows as much uh, more than i do on this but in in my circle which was mostly unitarian universalist uh, pagans um there were people that just stopped going to uh into magic circles because there was a a strong desire to have this link to the past and they felt that it was sort of they were i don't know people felt cheated i think that uh you know this some of this stuff was made up and you know that that was the right reaction. It was made up. <laughs> they were cheated, but that doesn't mean that there was no value in it. But at the same time that you know you had when you approached it, you had to come at it with open eyes. you know you you couldn't just blindly accept things, and that was the the big changing point for me, and that's why I try you know now in in whatever practice i have i i I really value the academic approach because at least i'm not you know uh, uh, if i if i if i'm looking at something i have an avenue to investigate it as much as i want because i might not want anything more than my belief uh if it works it works and that's all i care about but if i do want to be authentic about something then yeah contextualization matters a lot
5: well to add that we're uh I'm a product of the eighties and early nineties training. Our teachers basically were upfront about it. Like, look, we're not old. We're not, you know, ancient We're this is modern construct. We're using these different techniques. And in my case, uh, it was all over, you know, globally kind of stuff. Uh, but it was about how do we bring about a magical sh- shift in consciousness? and we're going to use all these various tools from different cultures different religious things to to bring about this change and and it worked very well but they were upfront that this is new you know it's not there is no ancient lineage uh not for us uh there are people that i believe do have it uh but it it i think it it worked very well it had a very profound impact on a lot of us and uh, most uh, still are so i would want to talk about the solstice as a uh, an extreme thing between where you're at on earth though i think it matters more of how this shift uh affects your your life and your mental being like here in alaska we have winter and a very short summer And so the winter solstice is, oh, thank goodness, there's going to be an end. You know, (laughs) summer is going to come. And then summer is rather depressing because you know you only get a little bit of it. Oh, no, it's the solstice. It's going to be winter again. So (laughs) when I live in the lower 48 in North Dakota, uh, we have a very balanced season. There's four fairly balanced seasons, and I really love that, where you you have a winter, but it's not long. You have an, a summer. It's really hot, but it's not long. And they have beautiful falls and springs. and But they're all nice and balanced. And so you can actually see the wheel of the year as we now celebrate it in a more balanced uh, reality. Up here, uh, Ostar, for instance, there's still two foot of snow on the ground. There is no no things budding out of the ground and life and everything is still frozen you know you got to wait until may to get anything green so <laughs> for us uh solstice is really a turning point whether you're celebrating christian uh christmas or hanukkah or diwali it's that light it's that it is a uh a, a thing of like there's hope of getting through this we really are thinking about okay it's done summer's coming. Mm-hmm. and I think I would ask how is that around the world how does that affect it and I think our argument today is was it Christians taking over this uh, or this taking that I think there's a fundamental need from a psychological standpoint to have a solstice celebration regardless of what religion you're uh, you're using for it and uh we're I think we're getting into arguments that are like for those of us on a Pagan bent, uh, it's kind of like defending our turf. And I don't really think it needs to be defended.
0: Mm. I think you raise an interesting point, Hank. Um, I, I remember that when I moved to the UK, I uh, thought, I thought, oh, that makes sense. It makes sense that the eight Sabbaths were developed in Britain. <laughs> to me it makes sense because compared to Italy. I think that here in the UK you really tend to see those eight stages in the in the year with the weather. Um sometimes of rain. Yes, the eight (laughs) stages of rain. But to me, it feels like there is much more of a demarcation on those eight stages of the year compared to Italy, where in October, when you're celebrating the darkness of Samhain, it's still hot and there are 30 degrees Celsius. That is, so um, it's whereas here in Britain, to me, it feels it makes sense that the eight Sabbats were developed here. And then I wonder if Wicca and modern paganism was developed in another country, maybe the the Wheel of the Year would have looked very differently. Although as Hank says, um, and that uh, is the case as far as I know, that solstices and equinoxes are definitely celebrated uh, cross-culturally. I couldn't say all cultures and I couldn't say from millennia and millennia because I would have to have sources to make that claim and you know the one in it has to do with big claims like that it's very difficult to find any scholarship because academic academic research uh, doesn't work on millennia it works on things that are very specific Um, but um, to me but yeah you definitely I was thinking that since I have researched shamanism quite a bit there are uh, many uh forms of shamanism around the world that celebrate solstices and equinoxes um as points that are considered particularly magical um the way that it was conceptualized in wicca with the wheel of the year and the eight stages and the way those eight stages were conceptualized that is peculiar to to wicca and contemporary paganism, and has being influential because you find that even other traditions, sometimes even historic traditions that don't consider themselves pagans would adopt that way of seeing the, um, the eight Sabbaths and the way they were conceptualized in Wicca. Uh, and the idea of the Sabbaths and the esbats comes from a mixture of Margaret Murray and um, uh, and Leland and you know, the interpretation that uh Gardner and uh Valiente had of those two sources, particularly because you find the idea in Margaret Murray that the Sabbath were the public festivals and yes, but the private festivals, and then in Leland you have the idea that every uh every full moon, uh the you know, there is a reunion to uh, to celebrate uh Diana and that you know the the two things were combined in their own way to to create those those celebrations. But what is interesting to me as an anthropologist is that if they have been influential to the point of becoming so popular and pervasive in esoteric traditions, you know this conceptualization of the wheel of the year and the celebrations of the Sabbath and the but it makes me think that it probably resonates to with people and with people spiritually now you guys know because we have the magus lectures every month and we have uh, the conversations on patreon uh, i don't know how much uh, people uh, here on the um, angela symposium know about this but i personally advocate for a disentanglement. not that it doesn't mean that one doesn't inform the other because of course they do and it is a permeable dis- distinction but I think that academic research is not the same as spiritual practice and it can inform your spiritual practice and if you are a reconstructivist or somebody that whose religion is tied to history then you know <laughs> you do you but I think that religion is one thing and uh, history or academic research is another thing so I understand the search for truth but uh, academic research and even science, science more generally, is not doesn't have as a aim to find the truth. Truth is something metaphysical to begin with. So you can try and find the truth uh, by trying to understand things in in history and based on academic scholarship. But I don't think that one translates into the other because otherwise that becomes scientism and scientism is the religion of science you know believing that everything that science says is uh, the the absolute truth and that's not what science is about it's not about finding truth and you will find that uh, over the the decades something that was considered to be uh, accurate that's why i use the term accurate knowledge In fact that science tends to find the most accurate knowledge that we can at a a given time but then we have different tools and different ways of understanding the world and so that's why knowledge um, I always say is a moving target now personally I also have the belief that the uh, objective world that we are studying via science changes I don't think that it is as stable as (laughs) some people may think Um, and so that's also their element, but that's more my uh, personal interpretation. But more generally, that's definitely the case that uh, science and academia are not about finding truth. So to me, uh, having the, the absolute rule that something religious or spiritual needs to absolutely rely on history and academic scholarship is a, a massive limitation. It's like saying, you can only do art as long as it follows the, um, I don't know, the rules of physics or something. So it it is very um, limiting. And I don't think that it is the purpose of spirituality or religion. (laughs) I think the purpose of spirituality and religion is very different from the purpose of academia. So one can inform the other. The the only problem that I find is that, uh, and in fact, this can be a problem that is led by the fact that people want to only believe what is, um proven factually at least at that given time uh is that then they start to claim that things that they experience religiously and have a very strong impact on their lives they start to claim that those are the truth that those are factually um correct and that's not (laughs) that, that is not correct so that's why i think that it's a to me especially as an anthropologist because for instance when i research practices and i uh, participate in rituals and i try to understand I, i don't only try to understand the history and where the practice comes from and whether they are correct in their historical understanding for me it's all it's also about why was this practice so influential why you know how come it resonated so much with the meaning making and the belief making and the practices that these people were doing so for instance if there is a a magic spell that is very effective you've tried it many times it's super effective and it is based on a misconception on a scientific on a scientific level or a historical level does it stop being effective in your practice i don't think that it would (laughs) so that's why i say that uh, and this is of course from the point of view of esoteric practitioners who believes in magic and practices magic um, I, I personally I'm not even a fan of wanting to prove magic scientifically I personally don't think that it's even possible I don't think that it is desirable either uh, I'm open to change my mind if evidence suggests otherwise but uh, up until that point which seems to be very far away <laughs> from now uh, I that's what I think I personally don't think that it's it's possible because the way magic uh, works as it is reported in field notes and what practitioners report is completely different from how science work science is about repeatability universal, the universability of and the standardization magic is not about standardization it is extremely personal something can work for me in one way and for you in a completely different way so that's why i think that scholarship is uh, important to inform practitioners and so that practitioners don't make claims that are clearly incorrect but I think that if practitioners were more honest about the fact this is what I believe this was transformative for me and they don't have to jump on big claims oh this is how it's always been for millennia and millennia because I think that that is also dangerous from um, political point of view because it just leans towards totalitarian thought and that idea of oh because I have the truth that's why I you know since I am somebody who is really repelled by any form of totalitarianism it's like no. (laughs) if even the idea i am an academic of course and i've dedicated my life to it uh, as you all guys know but still i wouldn't want academia to determine everything that people do that make that uh, allow their life to have meaning uh, you know imagine having art poetry um cinema and uh, you know indeed your spiritual practice all being absolutely determined to the to the letter by academic scholarship how boring that would be and how you know how much weight you are giving to academic scholarship that does that is not supposed to have in fact since i am i do anthropology and that is a conversation that we need to have when we have academic conferences one of the things that we always talk about is how can we not influence our informants because that is a, a big problem that we have in anthropology so when i was doing field work there were my informants they would sometimes change their answers and their beliefs based on what I was saying. So I had to um, have conversations with more experienced anthropologists so that I would formulate questions in a way that would not allow to, to, you know, my thoughts and my ideas to transpire in any possible way, because otherwise they would think, oh, she's the anthropologist, she knows. That's another thing that happened is that when I was asking them, so what is shamanism? explain to me what is shamanism uh some of my informants would reply but you're an the anthropologist you should explain it to me and it's like you are the practitioner i want to learn what what is that you think that shamanism is i'm here to learn from you but there is this idea that since you are an academic or a scientist then you are the one who's supposed to know but academics and scientists and in my case especially in anthropology i learn from people so um that that is another another problem that happens that then um and i think it's a responsibility that all the anthropologists that i know don't <laughs> want to have but it seems that to some degree uh there is um uh, there is definitely um, an influence that anthropologists play on the um, on the communities that uh that we study but it is something that we try to minimize as much as possible so i can tell you that because it is something that we have full conferences on. So,
4: Mm -hmm. I think absolutely that uh, what what academics say can influence uh, what practitioners do. A lot of it comes down to a basic human question of where does authority come from? Uh, If authority comes from tradition, if authority comes from popularity, all of these humans doing it in the past, uh, then that uh, legitimates what I'm doing. And a lot of people are just so deep into this herd mentality of, I'm not safe on my own. I'm not safe as an individual. I have to do what other people are doing. Otherwise I'm vulnerable and it could be hurt. And so that need to go along with what other people are doing translates to, okay, what's the most traditional magic? I'll do that. Okay, what's the most popular form of magic? I'll do that. Uh, And when you can start to realize that you can be the authority of your own reality, you can have an experience, you can get results through, through magic and you don't need... Uh, other people to legitimate it for you, it's legitimate for you because you were there, you had the experience, you got the results. Uh, when you have that kind of confidence, then you're not going to be influenced by, um, uh, you aren't going to be as influenced by his, uh, history or what academic, academics have to say. You may still adopt your practice because um, there's this interesting tension between tradition and novelty. Um, on the face of it, tradition doesn't want anything new to happen. Uh, But traditions also get very old and boring if nothing new happens. And so one of the benefits of uh, religious and occult scholarship is to reinvigorate traditions. Say, hey, here's this new thing that we didn't know about that's historical. And people go, oh, great, let's integrate. Let's uh, practice with it. Let's play around with it. And um, that's been happening with the Abermalin continuously. (laughs) where the first translation we got was bad. Um, and we still got it to work. And uh, there have been new information, new translations coming up. So people have all different ideas about how to do it and the best way to do it. Um, and it makes for a lively discussion and a lot of interest in it. So I think it can be an absolutely positive influence. Um, I think where we get into people abandoning their practices or modifying their practices just to conform to scholarship. A lot of times it just has to do with the personality issue of not feeling safe to do your own thing. And I think once people feel safe to do their own thing, then um, they can really start to embrace the tradition and not be so worried about what scholars might find or what other people might think.
0: Karen, did you want to say something?
1: Yeah, it's 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 very interesting about um, the two things: the the concept of history and then the concept of well, three things: science. let's get like Monty Python. Two? No, three, three. <laughs> no four. Yeah, gets like that. Um, here in Japan, I get into a lot of fights with people about what all the equinoxes and the solstices are versus the Japanese way of looking at seasons. They're very moon oriented here, not even sun. The sun thing happened around the year 700 when they felt China was getting pretty powerful and if they didn't have their own system, Especially of writing, um, they would lose out. So they decided to make up all of the stuff. And some of the stuff that they made up was about the sun goddess being chased into her cave by pranks for three days and nights and then being coaxed to come out on the third day. So they've got that. And everybody is pointing from that, you know, pointing to that being, oh, well, that's Egypt or no, that's Christianity, that's this, something, the yeah. other so that um yeah somebody in the comments mentioned nihon shoki and there's also the there's another work as well from around 700 but then basically people just let that go by the wayside through the centuries now it's a way of using the lunar calendar plus a number of traditional ways of arriving at dates in Japan where it'll shock you, the beginning of autumn for Japan, and this will be announced on their news stations as well, is in the middle of August. And the beginning of winter, I think this year, they announced it sometime around shortly before Halloween. So that brings up, you know, because when, I get into direct conflict with people. I say, well, do you know about the winter solstice? And a whole lot of people just don't even realize that that even exists. Um, The other point in Japan is that tradition. It might be boring for a lot of us, but for these people here, wow, it is totally interesting. They are into the new year. Christmas is a conflict here. It's a conflict between when their winter traditionally starts, which seems to be just before Halloween, and the idea of Christmas, which they like the magical element of the Santa Claus. They want to do that for the kids. They like the Coca-Cola red and white, and they like all of that. Um, More families are doing that now than they were 20 or so years ago. They like Halloween too, but they always ask me, What is that? <laughs> and I'm doing Santa Claus. My kids are waiting for Santa Claus to come. And what exactly is that? I said, Well, is Santa Claus coming down the chimney? What do you mean, chimney? Okay, so we've really got it. But basically, decorations go up. And very interestingly, in one in my neighborhood, went up just before Christmas. And everybody that I talked to said, lovely Christmas decorations. But there were many rabbit decorations with the lights. So I asked them, what are the rabbits doing there? I mean, is there something to do with the, gee, I don't know. I think four people said they didn't know what the rabbits were doing there. But then I found out, it's the Chinese zodiac, because this is the year of the rabbit. So they put with Christmas lights, with rabbits all around them and stuff. So that is very interesting, how that got mashed up there. So I think what we've got are people who care about history, they love to study it, but then they leave it by the wayside for tradition. Hmm. Um, And then they do that. And then they leave that by the wayside for magic. There are three things happening here. They love Santa Claus. They love Harry Potter. They leave both by the wayside for new year celebrations and the Buddhist traditions and a little Shinto in there. And then they leave all that by the wayside when they go to school and study the history. (laughs) That's very interesting how they separate the three things here And so I've just decided not to fight over this winter solstice thing anymore. When I say, that's not really winter. Um, You guys are, you've got that on the news. It's not winter at October 19th. That's not happening. It is the solstice and they're like, what is that? No one really announces it or pays any attention at all to that. Christmas comes down to, I don't even think they're doing, Jingle Bells is translated into Japanese. Nobody's singing it. They're singing the wham song about Christmas. (laughs) That is played so much here. I think I just yeah, it's it's if I hear it one more time. Uh that that's what it's like. But it's whose version of Silent Night are they singing? I guess that's Wham too. Um
0: they really like Wham. Well, it's good information for when I come over.
1: The staple. And uh, you ask folks over here, no matter what their ages are, why they like it, and they say, theres there hasn't got to be a reason. It's, it's, it's the season. <laughs> that's what it's about. What you get in Japan is a separation, and that's what makes it interesting. So you would really have to talk to academics to get, the the skinny on a lot of that. But it's very fascinating how their mood completely shuts down on December 26th for anything to do with Christmas and goes right into the new year. The new year here is January 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And they have special customs on each of those days um, that they're paying less and less attention to. But the most important is the food, the family, and the lucky bags that Lord knows what's in them. Um, And then on Adults Day, which is now, it used to be the 15th, it's now the uh, 8th of January, or rather the second Monday of January, um, when young people who have turned 20 or about to turn 20 years old celebrate that. It's that's the rite of passage over here. That pretty much goes with the new year period, which used to be much longer. It used to be about two weeks because the train system used to be slow 50 or 60 years ago. It took people a couple of days to get home, so they had a two week break. I think China's the only one doing that two-week New Year sometime in February when they do their Lunar New Year. But they're not doing the Lunar New Year over here in Japan. They're doing uh, January 1st. So it's very interesting how they're very date-oriented. It's got to be January 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. They're not aware of the winter solstice at all, most of the people I talk to. Um, They know about the sun goddess story. They think that that's pretty boring and old-fashioned, and it's cute, and that's about it. It's in the museum, a couple of things. Uh, Christmas, they just love singing that wham, and that's <laughs> what's going on. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we just have to give up and sing it sometimes. That's all. You know, we have to get along. I suppose. That sounds good. <laughs> the
3: downside of globalization.
1: <laughs> yeah, they love you to tell them, though, where all of this stuff comes from. They're asking you questions about it. And uh, the most shocking thing, I think, is what a lot of my American friends don't realize about the red and white. Uh, I learned about that when I was visiting my friend in France, and she said, Oh, you mean the Coca Cola Santa? <laughs> that's 1951. <1951." laughs> okay. Really? Okay, that's great. What color did it used to be? And so somebody from Norway chimed in and said, "Well, you're talking about Nisa, the brown guy, the, the, the poor man's guy that hangs out in the barn and waits for you to give him something on Christmas Eve." Okay, that's another one. Uh, but here in Japan, people don't even care about any of that history stuff, and they don't know Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. By the way, they don't—they don't get that either. They—they they just heard that the reindeer are pulling the sleigh. Mm. There's a lot of bits and pieces that they take. And um, I asked them about the magic element of that. And they're, well, that's for the kids, right? And I said, yeah, well, what do you think about the realization that it's, you know, it's, it's fake? What do you think about that? Yeah, well, my kids just go on believing that until they're 14 and oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> Carolyn carrying that quite along there. Um, so I have one question though, about the the media and how that communicates. Um, recently, we're all seeing things go into the public domain. And that is very interesting because when you see movies or productions go into the public domain, you're starting to see part of what came from people like crowley and what came from a lot of things that went before us before we were born and one of them is bell book and candle (laughs) okay this is something i keep hearing about i've heard about it all my life and i think i've probably gone to sleep on it several times when it was on late night back in the states but that thing is on youtube now and i just spotted that And I said, I think I want to give this a really good look for the first time, because there's a reason why this is sitting up here. That is very interesting. I don't know if any of you have seen it. What? It's 1958. I I haven't. I want you to imagine this. I know of it, but I
0: haven't seen it.
1: If we're talking about 1958, that's around the time of Robert Graves' work, isn't it? If we're talking about that. 1958, and so Steve Allen, who was a really big name in those days, was out there working on parts of the, this film. That's a major deal. And John Williams, whom I worship as a god of composers, was actually playing the piano on this thing. So we've got a mixture and Jack Lemmon and all these guys. We've got a mixture of major actors and you have a major Hollywood production in 1958, just a few years after World War II. And there's Robert Graves out there and you've got more Christians than probably what you have today, practicing. And you've got this film, which is mixing what's in it. Do you see any paganism in this film? Do you see any practicing elements of practicing witchcraft in this film? And it's coming out right at Christmas time. That is so interesting to me. That is my question for you guys. (laughs)
0: I I think that uh, one thing that I wanted to um, uh, clarify uh, again because I thought maybe they might have not uh, come across as clear in terms of the you know where the history and the academic knowledge is helpful and where it is not (laughs) so for instance an example that I can give and then we can go back to your question Karen Um, an example that I can give is on the fact that many Americans uh, believe that something like stregeria is italian witchcraft <laughs> now uh, that is not true <laughs> so if any of you guys watching this still believe that Raven Grimazzi is authentic italian witchcraft i'm hate to break the news to you but it is not like not at all and very often i get americans asking me for um, sources on uh, authentic italian witchcraft and it's like uh okay so do you speak italian no it's like Sorry, I cannot, I don't have any sources for you, but um, well, there is my my PhD coming out next year. So at least there's going to be one in English, but uh, to give you an example, so there are these people that are trying to um, get in touch with their heritage, with their cultural heritage, with their roots, and they are practicing what they think is Italian witchcraft. Now uh, it is not Italian witchcraft, but, uh, what do i think about the fact that they practice it and by practicing it they find meaning and they find connection with their roots and their heritage well i say fantastic if you find if you find your roots if you find meaning in that kind of practice that's great i mean keep practicing it the problem is when you start to make claims like raven Grim- grimassi used to do and he was um he was also very what's the term arrogant um when you make claims that what you are selling to people is authentic Italian witchcraft and that's where history and academic scholarship helps because he was so arrogant that he would even uh talk down to actual Italians who were born and raised in Italy knew Italian and uh he would still talk down to them saying that he was he was actually uh he actually knew uh what Italian witchcraft was to Italian which is that we're trying to correct him. So uh, I think that this is where academia and the proper study of history helps when there are claims made, uh, generic claims made. Now, that, that's why I say um, in one way, academic scholarship and science and history are important so that you know what is factual and then you know what is your own belief and your own practice. If you're doing something that is meaningful to you it is helpful it is transformative you do you but don't start and claim that it is that is the only one way to do the thing because it works for you and then it must work for everybody and it is the absolute truth and it is authentic italian witchcraft when you completely made it up <laughs> so uh you know this is i don't know if it is clear if my uh, because i i don't want to come across as if i'm trying to devalue academia because of course i'm not my whole channel and my whole project is based on that uh, but i'm just saying that um if we disentangle uh, spiritual practice from academic scholarship and science both um both win basically <laughs> because you can inform your practice to the extent that you want And then you can also follow your intuition and what resonates with you to the extent that you want without having to make uh, general claims because you are aware and cognizant of what is factual Um, and um, realizing that perhaps the you know the search for I don't know something that we could call truth is not really I don't know I don't think that it's desirable to achieve the truth on a in a general way in a general sense whether via science or via religion because it leads to authoritarian totalitarian types of thinking and dogmatic and it's like no it's like my everything about every fiber of myself is like no 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 i i'm personally not um i don't find that to be desirable but yeah i just i guess that i just wanted to clarify that because. I obviously value both the practice and the academic side. <clears throat> Hank, did you want to say something?
5: <clears throat> Have to find the mute button. Uh, yeah, uh, we. You brought up something earlier about uh, academia. Uh, I guess where my line of thinking goes, from a practitioner standpoint, in a study and a historical look, uh, you know, coming from an engineering. St- standpoint I look at uh, an architect will look at old buildings and how things were done historically Uh, not because every building has to be built like that but you learn the structure and you learn what works and what doesn't and then you can create something new that will work with magic I see it the same way we look at these old systems we study esoterica how did the magicians of old what was going on with alchemy how did they do it what worked what didn't work and so not because that's the way you always have to do it, but because I can take from this, learn from it, and then use it in my own practice to develop my own self and move forward. Not because I want to be back in time, but I want to use that knowledge that was gained by others so that I can build upon it.
0: Mm, that makes so sense. And it's about kind of identifying patterns rather than yeah, being dogmatic about following Exactly.
5: Something. So academia, to me, is a gift of being able to, uh, it's like understanding structural science. It's its own science in the way of these people did this and they had these results and these ones did this and all these different people, they created these things. Well, how did it work? And from a a practitioner, we put some of these things into uh, practice and we see what works for us and what doesn't. And if it creates a shift and a positive thing we use it if it doesn't well we move on to something else
4: i want to add that that's incredibly important for people practicing more modern magic including golden dawn wicca everything else because there's this misconception that it was just created whole cloth in the last 50 years or 100 years whatever the case may be and no a lot of these things have roots and ancient traditions a lot of what the golden dawn does is very much based in sacred geometry Uh, which the ancient greeks were practicing a lot of the philosophy is based in new platonism which was really popular among the greeks and also the christian theologians uh, which is why uh, so much of this comes through the christian tradition as well and so when you start to dig into the history of what are the influences that created this uh, modern tradition then you start to realize like oh there's more going on here than just this one guy or this one story there's all of these people behind them there's all of the humanity um, practicing magic before. And that also helps to inform your practice of understanding, okay, why do we do these things? Why is this arranged the way that it is? Exactly. And this is where it's so useful to have scholars too, to dig up new information. Here's a uh, mm. uh, new stuff, uh, Hanagraaff's work mm. on Hermetica has been absolutely um, uh, fantastic. Yeah. Everyone in the uh, Golden Dawn tradition, everyone practicing Hermetic magic. It's just so wonderful to find a lot of the original roots of um a lot of the things that we still value and teach and practice today
0: yeah that also reminds me of how in academia you have many ways of researching these things and um and um they kind of look at different aspects of the practice so for instance if from a historical point of view you would focus on oh the first uh edition of the corpus hermeticum that became very popular was actually a mistranslation so from a historical when when you see that as uh, a historical fact maybe people will think oh so these people were practicing on a mistranslation but for me as an anthropologist looking at the anthropological side it's it's more about oh what is about this text that was mistranslated maybe if it was translated correctly it wouldn't have had the same impact so for me what is interesting is what resonates with people so, how can you know what about that text with its mistranslations resonated with people, and would it have been different had it, you know, the, the first version being translated properly? Uh, whereas maybe for somebody who's focused solely on the historical side, it's like, oh, you know, those people were uh, using a, you know, something that was not even a proper, the proper uh, corpus hermeticum. Whereas As I said, for me, having an anthropological lens is more about what about it resonated with people, what about it was uh, perceived as powerful by people. Perhaps there was even something in the mistranslation that was of particular interest that should be uh, investigated. So that's why I think it's also important to also see the different lenses that you find in academia, whereas sociologists would look more at how uh, that text and its diffusion um, was impactful for the society at large or what elements of the political system fostered the, the the diffusion of the text as opposed to you know the opposite so every every field also has a different lens to look at this text that's why I think it's important to have all the perspectives uh, even in academia and it's very difficult because our uh, our field is massively underfunded of course uh, but hopefully in the future raising awareness even with this channel <laughs> on how important it is yeah
4: well, i have an example of that uh, so ever mail in the first translation that really got popular uh explained it as a six-month ritual not an 18th month ritual as it uh, came to light later. And I don't think it, it might not have caught on people. On an um, and now that people have gotten it to work with six months, it's like, can we keep doing this? <laughs> Why would we do 18 months if we can do it in six months? So um, I think sometimes, you know, there are happy accidents. There are things that may be inaccurate, um, but people get them to work, people appreciate them. Uh, they really start to inspire people and, add to the popularity rather than detracting from it so i don't think it's always the case that the most original the most authentic version is always going to be the best maybe the most authoritative in some sense um but uh, but why
0: though why is something more ancient more authoritative that's one of my pet peeves it's like why why does something <laughs> has to be ancient for people to believe that it has any authority i think the, the the esoteric community suffers as uh, you said earlier marcus from this problem of not having a central dogma and authority and they have to find it somewhere desperately or was it edward that mentioned the the for authority or maybe both both of you raised the point but um yeah there is this uh, idea oh we have to find authority somewhere somebody that that gives us the seal of approval this is true (laughs) you know that that kind of thing it's
5: It's even in modern how many people it's like I need somebody to initiate me I'm not valid until somebody anoints me
0: exactly so you know that that kind of shifts the focus when it is about that's why I say the academia and historic practices have different aims it's like when your aim is to have a practice that is effective and that is transformative and is meaningful to you then doesn't matter how many seals you have if you then don't feel anything if
4: you so i think there is some value in creating consensus uh because when it creates a community where people can practice the same things and be doing the same things and one way to establish consensus is tradition uh like if this is the most established way of doing something this is the oldest way of doing something if we're all going to do one thing well can we default to doing that um so that can be that can be useful i think it becomes it can be uh was it kind of productive at certain points and i don't think it's the only game in town either like i tend to I, i came into magic having studied philosophy and so to me like the metaphysics and the arguments for what does this practice say about reality how do these symbols are these symbols supposed to relate to my everyday life like that to me is often more pressing than how traditional something is um, so that's uh, the way that I approach magic um, in terms of philosophy and mindset. Uh, but the, I think there's a lot of tra- um, attraction within traditions to be traditional. But I don't think it translates to um, magicians from different traditions talking to one another um, all the time. Because if it, if it were all a matter of tradition, like we would all just go back to the Greek magical papyri and nothing else would even be an option. Uh, but people love their different traditions. They love philema. They love Um, golden dawn magic uh, they love the grimoire tradition and so they want to practice all of these different things Um, and within the tradition um, there's a lot of talk within each uh, kind of magic there's a lot of talk of tradition and that helps to generate consensus helps to get people on the same page which is great for like you know a ritual going sideways I mean if you need to diagnose a problem with a ritual or problem with the result that you got from it and you're the only one who's ever done that ritual because it was a chaos uh, working that is completely off the map of anything anyone's ever done tough <laughs> like who exactly are you going to talk to um it really helps to be doing at least kind of the same thing as other people mm-hmm. um and so for that reason i think there is value in tradition in terms of being one of the tools yeah. that people use to get everyone on the same page
0: yeah i think that's more like peer support rather yeah. than um necessarily something that is dogmatic i think yeah. that Uh, it is more building a community and building a support network to better understand something via the the shared experience so Mm. yeah that's totally understandable um and one uh, of the
3: things is that we often look at things like this where if we look at the edge cases where the extreme cases where you get dogmatism then you're always going to have to unravel that particular thought process Whereas in the middle, you have people that are far more collaborative and far more sensible and able to disentangle um, fact and historical accuracy, the importance thereof or not, because it means something to them. They're in a practice that they're actually getting feedback from uh, every day. So their realized existence is different from something where you have to kind of park all that and, and put it down to faith. So in a sense, you know, people that are living it and practice it, tend to find out what's important for them, as opposed to s- simply having their lives dictated by it. Right.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I'd like let's... To add something here. That we...
0: Yeah, sorry. It's gone, Andrew, and then we take a
2: couple of questions. Yeah, no, it's a good question there. Um, in the Maugus lectures, we discussed R- Rupert Sheldrake's morphic resonance theory, and that's one idea that might support using older traditions, because if a lot of people have done it, it should be easier he explains it like the wordle game if you do the wordle first thing when it comes out it's harder but it's easier for people later in the day who've had all that morphic resonance building up
0: hmm. that's a good point and also if you use the the theoretical lens of the um, egregore and the idea that there are things that build up over time and the more people use and practice something that you know the the ritual itself or the thing in itself becomes charged by every person who does it so in that sense yeah i can i can see how that would um yeah would be seen as more powerful
5: and then there are the demons or excuse me demons (laughs) (laughs) yes
0: So let's take a couple of questions. So we have one from Jess. Uh, Thank you so much Dr Puga, for hosting this live stream. Thank you for watching it. And uh, I have a request for the panel. What are um, each of your favorite books or papers on the study of historicism that you read in 2023? Favorite book or favorite paper? Come on.
2: Okay, I'll start this one. It's whatever I'm reading at the time, (laughs) which at the moment is Philip K. Dick's um, Exegesis. (laughs) And I'm loving it. It's not really esoteric, but he's got these weird, wonderful ideas of how the world works. But there's another one I brought up earlier in the um, um, in the chat called "So Spake the Plant" by a scientist who's also a practitioner and putting her practic- you know, um, magic into the science and coming up with amazing results. And just like to say, Doctor Sledge, if you write a book, that will be my favourite book after. The one that's coming out by Andrew Rimbrel next year.
0: Um, Karen, do you want to go next?
1: Yeah, well, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. So basically (laughs) it's going to be all those seven original books. Um, But other than that, um, I don't know. I think this was Dr. Justin Sledge was talking about this, The Hellbound Heart. And I picked it up for the first time uh, early this year. Very impressed with what that's dealing with. So, it, it, if you want to talk about something that's more like getting into esoteric and things like that, I think it would be the Hellbound Heart, which was really good. Um, but in terms of magic, yeah, Harry Potter all seven books.
0: <laughs> okay. Dave?
3: Um, So I was reading, a couple of things have have come back to me that I've been reading this year that I'd read in the past, Um, but the paper, uh, sorry, the question asked for a paper from 2023, I was reading one that was recently published on religious comparativism and I can't, I was just looking for it, I can't remember the author, Um, but I'd, I'd been looking back through, I think inspired by your various videos as they come up, it prompts you to go and do some background reading. I was reading Libanal again, and I, it just reminded me of the reason why I got into that in the very first place was not because particularly of any magic significance, it was because the psychonaut uh, part of the title. It's very similar to Supernaught, which was a song by Black Sabbath. So <laughs> I thought, Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so I got I got into it for that reason. So you know, and had a read and was like, Oh, okay, you <laughs>
0: know <laughs> Marcus.
4: I'm uh, so boring. I'm always going to recommend the same three books because these are the books that I learned to teach myself magic. Uh, they're also the books that Damien Eccles learned to teach himself magic while he was on death row in prison and learned to enough magic to manifest his way out of death uh, death row and out of prison. So that's a good uh, endorsement. Uh, but these are uh, here we go: uh, Learning Ritual Magic, uh, Circles of Power, and Paths of Wisdom by John Michael Greer. And these are basically the three books that you need to learn modern golden magic, modern golden dawn magic. And um, yeah, this one starts as the introduction, starts with all of the elements. So you should definitely try that one. These are more advanced, but they'll take you pretty much the rest of the way or at least give you enough to figure out the rest of the path of golden dawn astrotheurgy. And then those are old. So something I read in 2023, it's a little bit older, but no, many people know about it. It's The Dolman Arch uh, by John Michael Greer. This is a Druidry book, um, but a lot of the um, philosophy and the metaphysics are extremely relevant to modern magic, old and non-magic. So I totally check this out as well.
0: Hmm. Hank, what about you? I was thinking also that we should do a Magus lecture on, on Greer, because that's mm-hmm. also interesting and modern day golden okay. dawn, but the next lecture is going to be on Israel regarding, so. <laughs> oh.
4: Hey, good in sequence.
5: <laughs> oh, for me, it, uh, Dr. Hanegraaff his last book, um, uh, like I like to say, ball, peen, hammer to the third eye, just, it just, uh, open up mm-hmm. a lot of stuff really really loved it
0: yeah that's uh that's the one that i was thinking about as well hank um it's called dramatic philosophy and the historical imagination Yep,
5: yeah, um, i can't recommend it enough
0: um, yeah you will also find the interview with uh, hannah Graff on this specific book on the youtube channel if you guys are interested in knowing more about what the book is about edward what about you you are the lib- the librarian so <laughs>
6: well uh second handagraph that that's probably one of the most influential books i've read in a long time lately i have been uh have a project that involves studying uh, early modern witchcraft and i came across this book called witches and neighbors the social and Co- cultural context of european witchcraft which is a fascinating book um More along your lines, a little more anthropological, I think, uh, does a great job of deconstructing what we think of as a witch, uh, how that image has changed over time and why neighbors were afraid of their neighbors. Uh, So it's kind of the opposite of studying high magic it's more like you know these are all poor people that didn't have a lot to gain you know why why were they doing this and uh it's it's a it's a very very interesting read uh it's scholarly and long but uh if you get through it i i think that the chapter on uh engendering the witch alone is worth the reading yeah
0: Hmm. maybe i could make a video on that That'd be good. And um, the last question before we wrap up is: How are each of you planning to celebrate sources in your own practice?
4: Food. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is actually one of I'm doing these days. I have a Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/slash/The Esoteric Magic Shop. Uh, so I'm going to be creating sigils for working with Archangel Hanael of Capricorn. Uh, the sun's ingress into Capricorn happens at the same time as the winter solstice um, in the Western Tropical Zodiac. And so this is the perfect time to work with an angel to manifest through the month of um, uh, December and January, but also for the whole year. Uh, figure out what do you want from this year? What do you want to do with this year of your life? And developing a relationship with this Archangel of the Zodiac to start to express and manifest these desires and we do it through a simple sigil that you can look at concentrate on manifest um, but you can also use magic and a short ritual to activate it and if you get good at doing that then you can join me for full ceremonial magic invocation of Han Um, so the patreon is really good to help people get started with really simple magic and work their way up to more advanced magic and I've been doing this for a while because that's what I'm passionate about. And I will be creating those sigils and consecrating them and the recording audio ritual guides. So I'm going to be deep into this energy by the time the actual uh, winter solstice rolls around.
0: Mm. Sounds great.
3: <laughs> I've always loved the expression from the sublime to the ridiculous and listening to Marcus's <laughs> wonderful uh, articulation there. I was going—I was thinking along the similar lines to Edward that I was gonna go with a chocolate yule log.
0: <laughs> well knowing me and my passion for chocolate of course there's also, there's also how i'm going to celebrate <laughs> the solstice that and some you can dancing
2: um arizona oh sorry yeah um being here in the um the southern hemisphere we have of course summer solstice and uh, so i'll be in the garden so i will be um, sort of communing with my friends my sort of plant friends my animal friends mostly insects my microbial friends and all that who i rely on to uh, keep me fed and healthy
0: that's great Andrew. (laughs) what about you karen
1: Um, I always look at the exact time of the winter solstice here and I try to, whatever time that is, be aware of it. And if I'm at home, I turn and look at this bird that I've had for many years here and say, now it's gonna be dark, it's it's gonna be light at five o'clock really soon. And he answers me and that's about it. (laughs) Uh, I'm always anxious to see the beginning of it getting gradually lighter outside at five o'clock in the afternoon. And that's exciting to me. Yeah, to see the moment of the longest night and see exactly when it's gonna go back.
0: You reminded me like that perhaps hat. Yeah. You reminded me that perhaps a way that I could celebrate the solstice is to release the next video on the solstice, like looking up when it's going to happen uh, here in the UK and releasing the next video when the solstice happens and see (laughs) what Uh,
1: comes.
4: (laughs) Astrological timings for video releases. You need to start this. This will be amazing for you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I guess that we can wrap up and uh, thank you, Greg, for the um, super chat. So thank you all guys for coming over here, and I will see you. I will see you all on Saturday for the Marcus lecture, as we do every month. Although normally it is on a Sunday, but uh, this month is, you know, all Sundays are <laughs> uh, a holiday for for people. So it, um, I thought it would be better to move it to to Saturday. So we will talk about israel Regardi. i will release the next video also on israel Regardi, but it will be a, a, more of a summary and then we will expand more in the inner symposium um so thank you all so much and also thank you to edward andrew and joao for moderating the chat edward and andrew are here and <laughs> joao is in the chat so i forgot to, to say earlier sorry i always forget to say but thank you for also moderating the chat on live streams so thank you all for, for being here. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> and uh, I will see you next in the Inner podium. So uh, we have come to the conclusion of this live stream. Before we wrap up, I'd like to remind you to sign up for my newsletter so that you always get uh, all the updates about my work um more pictures and insights on my academic scholarship and everything uncensored so sign up for my newsletter it's in the comment sections and then i will post it also in a pinned comment and um if you like my project of delivering free academic knowledge uh, publicly to everybody and you want to offer this knowledge to everybody i would um you know i would really appreciate it if you support my work with a one off people donation by joining memberships uh here on youtube or my inner symposium on patreon or on coffee it also offers the uh, the chance of doing donations and stuff and if you cannot support the work financially i also appreciate any other type of support like smashing the like button if you enjoyed this live stream which i hope you did and uh, leave me, leave me a comment down below so that i know what you thought about our conversation and uh, share my videos around and uh, subscribe and activate the notification bell if you haven't done it already, because I hope that you look forward to the next video and all my uploads. So (laughs) thank you all so much for being here and stay tuned for all the academic fun. Bye for now.